0: You're listening to Knowing Faith, a podcast of Training the Church.
1: This is Kyle Worley, and I'm joined by my co-hosts JT English and Jen Wilkin. Hey, Kyle. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I was just, I was just uh. thinking. Kyle, Kyle asked me right before we started to do the introduction, and now I'm just lost. I, I thought about it, and now I don't even know how to say hello anymore.
0: Well, what, do, what do other people do at the beginning of their podcasts? I feel like every time it's just awkward and goofy for us. Hey
1: guys, no, it's basically every podcast except for like the really, really professional ones.
2: Uh, they feel like a cold Wait, open. We're a really, really professional one.
1: Yeah, some of us are more professional than. I- <laughs> 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 Uh yeah um I, I think that if professionalism was a spectrum Jen would be uh, high on the list you and me JT would be fighting for the dead last position <laughs> on the podcast <laughs> based off of uh the uh, the battles we have fought in the past um, well today uh, uh and you know now, and oh boy <laughs> and the audi- the audience would not know how other podcasts start because we are their their first love so oh, right you. Uh, so thank you thank knowing you faith Knowing Faith audience hey no you know what this is this is a great moment because we're talking about let me just say this hey thank you for listening to Knowing Faith a lot of you have left reviews on iTunes for the podcast you're following us on social media you're sharing what we're doing thank you I just mm-hmm. we, we don't say that enough we are really honored Jen you were saying that you just came from a conference uh-huh. and you were hearing from a lot of people that they've really enjoyed the show
0: yeah but you know what else I'm hearing and I'm a little torqued about this like what season are we in oh six yeah Season six, and I still do not have a Crickleback t-shirt.
1: Oof. Yep, yeah, that's
0: true. Like, wh- what do I have to do to get a Crickleback t-shirt?
1: It, uh, you know what? That's a good point. Uh, you know, if, if there's somebody out there, if there's an Enterprising Knowing Faith uh, listener that wants to design a legitimate <laughs> Crickleback shirt, then we will we will wear them and take pictures of ourselves wearing them. <laughs> do you have the it's
2: uh, Bananas mug?
0: I did. Yeah. I was sent so. one of those. My my one that says, um, uh, what was the other? It says, uh, the Bible is for everyone. Mm-hmm. It arrived with the handle snapped off. <laughs> I didn't want to tell you
2: but now and you can until just until we were it recording Yeah, like okay. it it's into your
0: perfect yeah. thank you so this is a great that was a great plug for
1: our uh <laughs> <laughs> our quality <What>? stuff
2: here <laughs> we're <a
1: professionalism. laughs> yeah we're like Jin, Jin's. like make sure you go buy one of our mugs mine came broken
0: Get you some <laughs> gashed broken my stuff. hand open yeah
1: well but uh was it broken butthole though Oh, oh
2: man! Hey, yeah, it doesn't count as one of mine.
0: That's another T-shirt. Yeah. yeah, well, <laughs> another T-shirt I'm, idea. But please don't design that. I'm I'm,
1: I'm waiting. Yeah. I'm waiting until we hit our uh uh, uh, uh like. Inevitable plateau, and then we'll we'll start releasing the broken butthole merchandise, mm-hmm. and that'll be our second wind.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh <laughs> no! Oh my goodness! But Kyle, seriously, listeners, go Google Mosaic Church logo and tell me that Kyle did not design a logo that looks like his tagline. <laughs>
2: Kyle, you're going to have to change the logo.
0: People people of Mosaic Church
1: that listen to this podcast, let me encourage you. The last shall be first and the first shall be last. You know what I'm saying?
2: But if that's true and you're the last and you're going to be first, doesn't that make you laugh?
1: I know, right? It's like, a uh, well, no, I was like about to... I was about to quote the funniest meme I'd seen in a long time, but I'm not going to do that. Okay. Hey, we
0: have a last being first story today.
1: Bang. There we go. Oh. Perfect segue. We've been exploring Genesis 12 through 50, this season unknowing knowing faith. Today, we find ourselves uh, on the uh, in the middle of really of the story of Joseph, but it's kind of a detour. Like Joseph's story, we kick into Joseph's story. He gets sold. He's headed towards Egypt with the Midianite caravan. He's going to be sold to Potiphar uh, at Potiphar's house. And then... About the moment we're hearing that Joseph has wound up there, it says it happened. It's almost like this transitional meanwhile? phrase. Yeah. Meanwhile, dot dot dot, and you know, in, in other news, it happened at that time that Judah, uh, one of Joseph's brothers, went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain oh a Adulamite. That I'm going to go mine with that. Says Canaanite. Really, mine says mm-hmm. a Oh,
0: certain. I'm sorry, I was looking down below
1: whose name was Hira. There, Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her and she conceived and bore a son. He called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son and she called his name Onan. Yet again, she bore a son and she called his name Shela. Judah was in Chezeb when she bore him and Judah took a wife for Ur firstborn and her name was Tamar.
0: Tamar. Hey, quick show of hands. How many of you have heard a sermon over the chapter that we are currently going through Kyle is and, raising his hand yeah I don't on think this, I o-
1: have on this audio medium uh, you can't see me but my hand is up I don't think I have honestly
0: yeah because people don't want to talk about this because yeah. it's super awkward
1: yeah it is it's a this story is uh is a is a tricky one to navigate well and so but we're gonna jump into it Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Okay, so uh, Tamar uh, has been given over to Judah's uh, firstborn son, Mm -hmm. Ur. And Ur is such a bad dude that God kills him. Right. Right strikes him dead. Then it says this, then Judah said to Onan, this is Ur's brother, okay? Mm-hmm. Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. Now, can we just pause right here for a second? Yeah. Is this, is this conventional or unconventional what's happening here? Because when somebody hears this, they might go, whoa, whoa, hold on. What's going on here? But the, the, this was actually Judah trying, at least it looks like, to practice a custom that yeah. was, was meant for good for people. Yeah, right.
0: he's, he's actually at this point in the story trying to do the right thing. So um, Ur is so bad that God kills him. So just for a moment, think about the significance for Tamar in that. She's been married to a guy who is so terrible that God strikes him dead. And so now we find out that actually um, Judah's other son is really no better than the first because when he is told to go and do what he is asked to do, basically legally, which is yeah. to <clears throat> provide offspring uh, in the marriage, that would functionally be the firstborn of his dead brother. That mm-hmm. this is called leverett marriage, and in this manner, the the line is preserved. He refuses to do it, and he refuses yeah. to do it because, effectively, what would happen is the rights, uh, the inheritance of his brother would go not to him because his brother's not dead, but would instead go to the child that he fathers with Tamar.
1: Yeah, and his refusal is interesting, and I just want to acknowledge that it is a this the the next verses here are just kind of weird, mm-hmm. and I just put cards on the table. We have we've had to record this part a couple of times.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, more like four
1: because, mm-hmm. the, str- because the strangeness of uh, the manner of Onan's refusal is can, can be a little bit funny to read. Uh, but <laughs> and base I'm not going to read it because I'm a, I'm a fearful that once again I will break it by laughing. And it is Onan is not actually doing a funny thing. Onan is doing a wicked thing.
0: Mm -hmm. It's denounced. And, you know, we and this is actually this is significant because so basically he decides that rather than um, make this a fruitful union, he is going to in a very secretive way, prevent um, Tamar from ever being able to conceive. So, of course, Tamar would know, um, but no one outside of the marriage would necessarily know what's going on. But we get this uh, this editorializing that is really uncommon in the text. And we saw it actually in the story of Dinah. It said that what happened to her was wicked. But then we see um, in verse 10, it says, what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and so the Lord puts him to death too.
1: Yeah, because he would not provide children. He wouldn't do the righteous mm-hmm. and honorable thing. Mm-hmm. And keep in mind this provision of children is both the continuation of the line, that's the theological thing that's running through here, but it is also a way of continuing to manage and provide sustainability for households. Yes. That like that that Tamar was not just uh going to be included in the potential line of the the chosen and promised offspring, but that the provision of children was an economic and civic and organizational safety net mm-hmm. for her own provision
0: and protection. That's uh, right. It's good for the community, but it is certainly good for Tamar, you know, yeah, as absolutely. a widow. I mean, widows don't fare well in this culture, generally speaking. Uh-huh.
1: Yeah, so when Onan withholds himself and withholds the offspring and his seed, it, this is not just a theological problem, or it's not just a theological or blasphemous thing, it's a disrespectful, undignified, unrighteous way of behaving towards Tamar. Now that feels strange to us, but it would not have been strange to them. And I think this is just one of those areas where you have to realize that there's an imaginative gap oftentimes for us that exists between us and the world of the ancient Near East.
0: Well, and what we we miss is the tone of the story that has already been set is look at Tamar the victim. I mean, that really is the way that the story is being set up is that Tamar is becoming increasingly more and more victimized by this particular family. And since we missed that piece, the rest of the story makes us often paint Tamar in a light that is actually not something she deserves. And also, I would just like to point out, JT, you have not said one word. You're just sitting there super quiet. Like uh, you yeah. aren't the reason we had to record things four I times. Not, I am not,
2: Jen. You you can be honest right now. You have the opportunity to be honest with the listeners. <laughs> Why did we have to record okay. again?
0: I did misspeak <laughs> in the first run that we took that at
2: it. <laughs>
1: No, just,
0: so that will one day, that'll no, be one it day. would never, no one No one will ever know. One day, one I day. I caught man. it. You guys didn't even catch it. It's true. That'll be
1: released on our Knowing Faith B sides one day. Um, well, what Onan did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter in law, remain a widow in your father's house till Sheila, my son, grows up, for he feared that he would die like his brother. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. In the course of time, uh, the wife of Judah, she was daughter died. When Judah was comforted he went up to Timnah to a sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira, the Adullamite, we've already met Hira earlier on in the story. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear a sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up. She sat at the entrance uh, to ename which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Sheila was grown up and she had not been given him in marriage. So basically a lot of years have transpired because mm-hmm. Judah said, hey, I've got another son. I'm going to do right by you when he's old enough. And this is telling us now.
0: Well, he never intended to. It's already been said, you know, he was afraid. He thinks she's a black widow. He basically yeah. thinks that anybody he marries to her is going to die.
1: Yeah, and not that his sons are just messed are,
0: up. Yeah, are so terrible that the Lord has to kill them.
1: Right, so she goes up because she now realizes Judah is not going to do the righteous thing here. Mm-hmm. He has failed to do that. He is
0: failing to do that, and he has lied to me. Um, go ahead. Can I just say one more thing, Kyle? I'm sorry, but like, if you think about, she's probably she has just had two unspeakably bad marriages in this family and yet she still is going to contend for a third marriage what What are the odds that this third son is going to be better than the first two and I think that's an important detail for us because it throws into sharp relief how desperate her situation is as a widow living in her father's house that she would think it was preferable to be married to the third son of Judah after everything she's gone through tells us the pressures that she's up against as a, as a widow in the society who's been sent back to be a burden to her family of origin.
1: Absolutely. <clears throat> so she goes and she sits at uh, the entrance to Enim, uh, which is on the road to Timnah, for she saw that Shayla was grown up and she had not been given him in marriage. When Judas saw her, he thought she was a prostitute for she had covered her face. He turned her at the roadside and said, come, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, what will you give me that you may come into me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, if you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, what pledge shall I give you? She replied, your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her, he went into her and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. So Judah sleeps with Tamar who is not his daughter by blood, but is is his daughter-in-law who has been married now to two or has been married to one of his sons, given to the second son who did not do right by her uh, and both were killed. And the third, who he promised to give to her, he did not. Now Judah has uh, conceived a child with Tamar. Um, When Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the the Adulamite, that one's a hard one. Wait, wait, wait,
0: wait, 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 wait. We got to back up. Okay. Because I need you to see what's going on here with Judah. Notice how the text reads. It doesn't say that she called out to him to come into her. Right. It says that he says, come, let me come into you. So basically what's being intimated to us is that this is his habit. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and she knows apparently that all she has to do is make herself available and he will show up and he will take the he will initiate everything um which just goes to show you the quality of family that you're dealing with that has produced these these three bad apples of sons yeah
1: and and why are you making it a point to talk about the fact that he's the one that called out to her because you're doing that for a reason
0: Well, because we're going to find out he's going to actually pronounce a verdict on her later that we often withhold from her. Mm -hmm. Um, And when when he says he's going to send her a young goat from the flock, she says, no, that's not what I want. Um, She says she wants his, um, well, she she says, I need a pledge that you will send it. And she asked for his signet, his cord and his staff, which is basically his wallet, his keys and his driver's license. Like she can identify him with those items.
3: Your copy today. We live in a possession and money obsessed culture. But what does the Bible say about generosity? In his new book, A Short Guide to Gospel Generosity, author Nathan Harris shows us that the answer to our obsession with possessions is turning to the gospel, because only in the gospel can we find the type of life transformation that enables us to turn our focus from ourselves and back to others, to give generously, and to follow in the way of Christ. To learn more about the book, visit Guide to Gospel generosity dot com. That's Guide to Gospel generosity dot com.
1: So uh, the story goes on and it says that Judah sends the young goat and he asked them in the place, where's the cult prostitute who was at M at the roadside? They said, no cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also, the men of the place said, no cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat and you did not find her. Okay. So now Judah's realizing I have made it like something has happened here. I've been tricked. Mm-hmm. I'm going to be foolish if
2: this gets found out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's realizing that there's going to be consequences to his sin, but I think something that that it's hard, maybe hard for us in a secular west to realize in a hypersexualized moment. Judas not just thinking he participated in a sexual act, he participated in what he considers to be cult prostitution like mm-hmm. he is tying mm-hmm. himself to other religious bodies via a sexual act so so in the ancient eastern world there was no such thing as just believing you were participating in prostitution as a sexual act For him, Mm -hmm. this is a deeply religious act, which gives you a picture of his relationship with the Lord, of his understanding of God's covenantal promises, even the the sign of circumcision that is on him and how he's using that sign to participate in other religious bodies. That's something that we should see here. And he's not worried about that at this point. He's only worried Mm -hmm. about the consequences of his sin that I might be embarrassed. I shouldn't have done this because of the consequences it could have for me socially. Right. That's a pretty significant point, I think.
0: Well, and then you, again, think about it from Tamar's perspective. Not only has she been willing to advocate for a marriage to a third son who's probably a jerk, but she's willing to do this in a way that is costly. Like, it's Mm -hmm. not like she's excited at the prospect of sleeping with this old dude, basically. She is desperate. And she is also, as we'll see, doing the righteous thing. Um, and I'm, I'm, I've got, I'll just save that for just a little bit. Keep going.
1: Got it. So uh, uh, this is what happens. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law has been immoral. Moreover, she's pregnant by immorality. Okay. And what is Judah's reaction? Bring her out and let her be burned. Super mm-hmm. religious
2: thing to do, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's so, one of he, it, do you ever notice that the people who are sometimes often most ingrained in their own sin want the gravest consequences for others who they, they perceive to be sinners?
1: Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, that's why I think when the moral failings of some of these huge evangelical pastors, mm-hmm. when it comes out and it's like, well, but like, didn't you rail against this? Exactly.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Well, shamed people, shame people, right? Yeah,
2: and often it's the sin that you are most against is the one you most struggle with or the sin that you want to see perceived or, or be judged is the, is something that you actually have a deep, deeply ingrained habit or sin struggle against yourself.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, Yeah.
2: Mm-hmm. not always, not always, but just obviously we see that here.
1: Mm-hmm. It says, as she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are. The signet, the signet, the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, Sheila. And he did not know her again. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this is a huge moment because like from, in one event, he moves from, she's done something wrong, burn her, mm-hmm. to she's more righteous than I am.
0: Mm-hmm. And so this is one of those stories. Um, this is an idea I've been exploring a little bit and I just had an opportunity to teach on it. Um, just a few days ago, it's a motif that you see elsewhere in the scriptures, but it's important for us to pay attention to Tamar in particular, because she is the first of the five women who is mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus and Matthew. And, um, often the genealogy is taught, the women in the genealogy are presented to us as, um, sexually immoral or, or question of questionable motive, you know, uh, with regard to some sexual, um, encounter, um, who are in the genealogy to show us that God will work through even someone like Tamar. But, But what the text is showing us here is that she is a righteous person. And not only that, but she is a Canaanite. She's outside of the line. And so um, she is someone who is able to show us in the genealogy how the, the Gentiles are included in the promises that come to us through Christ. But she's presented to us not as an unrighteous member of the genealogy or certainly not any more unrighteous than some of the other people that we find in the genealogy. And in this particular story that is really the all that we know about her. She is given to us as someone who contends for the righteous line to go forward. And she fits a motif that is started in in the garden called Woman Against the Serpent. Uh, and that's you know that the the there will be enmity between the woman and the serpent, and then the the prophecy that the serpent would bruise the offspring's heel, but he would crush its head. And you see this motif elsewhere in the Bible, where there is a woman who, or women, if you look at like the Hebrew midwives and some others, who who basically shake their fist at the one who is wielding power in a way that is meant to kill life. And say, I stand up for um, the rights of the, of the line of um, the children of God. And so that's what the Hebrew midwives do. It's what uh, Rahab ends up doing in some sense. Um, and, and often in the stories of these women, as we see here with Tamar, there's deception on the part of the woman. And that's the thing I think that's most fascinating to me is that um, we all know that the, the serpent himself is the original deceiver And so we see Tamar and these other women employing the serpent's own weapons and turning them against him. You might say in New Testament terms that we see her being as shrewd as a serpent all the while being as innocent as a dove. Hmm.
1: Man, yep. That is really good. Is this good. when we just stop? Well, <laughs> no, I mean, I, but I think it's pivotal because you're right, Jen. I yeah. mean, now, uh, raise your hand if you've heard a sermon preached about the genealogy of Jesus, uh-huh. where the women were featured as basically like mm-hmm. these grimy, filthy people. Mm-hmm. God can use anybody, Right.
0: Well, it's tough. I mean, we covered this a lot when we talked about, you know, first and second Samuel, the Bathsheba. The thing that's so disturbing is that so often the person in the narrative who figures in the role of the serpent, who is is conformed to the image of the serpent is someone who we want to see as the hero of the story. And so like with the case of David in that story of Bathsheba, he's the one who comes to kill, steal and destroy. Uh, And, you know, and then Bathsheba stands up for the rights of her son Solomon to sit on the throne. Um, but, um, But that's a hard, you know, it's hard hard for us to get there because we're so accustomed to hearing David is the hero, you know, Judah, he's the one who we know, you know, Jesus is going to come through this line. And so we, we, we want to find a way to make Judah the hero of the story. And that's not to say that because they conform to the image of the serpent at that point in the story, that they are um, evil. Uh, they are acting in ways that are in accordance with that you know, the, with the wrong image. Um, but it's it's to serve the further point that the serpent is still making war against the woman all the way through.
1: Yep, that is good. Uh, thank you. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on the hand saying, this one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. Huh, does this sound familiar? <laughs> And he said, what a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out with a scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zera. So this story sounds real familiar, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Who does this sound like, listeners? It sounds like Jacob and Esau, mm-hmm. right? um and uh i think that's fascinating genesis is full of these resonances where Mm -hmm. these stories have like some echo to them Mm -hmm. Um,
0: Last shall be first moments yeah where the second son becomes the first son and even in the even in the case of tamar you know she's someone that we would assign to the last and yet she ends up being elevated she's she's in the genealogy of christ and she's proclaimed righteous Mm -hmm. so yeah pretty cool and it's
1: pretty cool. It's pretty cool. And this is where we're going to end today. Is there any concluding thoughts we have on the story of Judah and Tamar before we jump into Joseph in Egypt? Because this is kind of an interesting excursus. And we haven't broached this question, but like maybe this is a great, great place to land. This seems, and Genesis does this, and narratives do this occasionally. This is kind of a it's a departure. We we were hearing about Joseph. Mm-hmm. Judah, Judah factored into that story, but not as like an A-list character, right? I mean, he was the star of Genesis 37 is Joseph. Uh, but in 38, now we're talking about Judah and Tamar. Mm-hmm. Why? I mean, is there any reason other than to just tell the story of Israel to explain the origin of Zerah and per- Perez? Is there... Is it, I mean, the continuation of the line. I mean, all those would be unique contributions of this story, but gosh, they fall right in the middle, or not right in the middle, but like the Joseph story is starting and then we cut away immediately. And I don't know that I know why.
2: Yeah, I, th- I think you just hinted at it right there. The, one of the major promises throughout this, this story that Jen's already highlighted, Genesis 3.15, that there will be an offspring that comes to crush the head of the serpent. And we're continually thinking the whole way, who who is this mm-hmm. going to be? Is it going to be... Abraham? Is it going to be Isaac? Is it going to be Jacob? Is it going to be Simeon? Is it going to be Reuben? Is it going to be Judah? Is, is mm-hmm. it going to be Joseph? And here we're seeing that, that through this birth of Perez, ultimately there's going to be one who comes and you're going to think, is it going to be him? So one of the questions that you should be asking, not every time you read Genesis, but it, it, one of the main questions it's asking is, how is this offspring going to be perpetuated, propagated, and which offspring will be the one who ultimately comes? to be the king. Mm -hmm. And again, it's coming in this first shall be last way, last shall be first, this way that is incredibly uh, unpredictable that God is going to bring about his redemptive purposes.
0: Yeah, and I think a good exercise in terms of building Bible literacy with this is because we do, we hit chapter 38 and like we know when we hear that Joseph is going into Potiphar's house, we're thinking of like every vacation Bible school we ever went to where you learn the story of Joseph and what's gonna happen there. And we don't want the story to cut away to this story. Also, the story is so awkward that, you know, your three hosts couldn't even get through it without having a seventh grade moment laughing, right? And so it's like, you you just wanna cut this out. And so the question we always have to ask is, why isn't it cut out? Like, Right. What 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 is the story missing if chapter thirty eight isn't in Genesis? And it's in there because it's refocusing us on who is going to be a critical figure in the narrative, and that's Judah. And Judah is going to figure in a big way into the story of Joseph, and obviously figures into a, in a big way into um, the the line that's going to go forward. That's
1: good. That's good. And yet the story is going to continue, and it's going to continue back, not with Judah, but with Joseph in Egypt. And so on our next episode, we will rejoin Joseph. We will find him in Potiphar's house and we'll continue to explore that story as we look for connections to the greater story of Jesus Christ. You can join the conversation by finding us on social media. We're at Knowing Faith Podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash Podcast for some cool exclusive stuff over there for our patrons. Uh, Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoy the discussion. Grace and peace.